You are listening to The Heart of Christ, a year-long podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. Throughout 2022, we will spend time reflecting on Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, so we can come to know not only what Jesus has done, but who he is. What is his deepest heart for his people, people who are weary, stumbling, sinners, and sufferers? So we invite you to grab your Bibles, prepare your hearts, and come along with us as we find rest in the gentle and lowly heart of Christ. Welcome to episode 16 of The Heart of Christ. My name is Keith Winder, one of the pastors at Wheatland, and today I am joined again by Dan and Liz Grubb. Dan and Liz, if you've been following along, joined us back in episode 7 when we talked about sin and its interaction with God's holiness. And Dan and Liz have two children, Olivia and Nolan, and they have been a part of Wheatland for about five years. If you want to find out more about them, you can either just talk to them in person uh, or, or you can go back to episode seven and hear a little bit more. I, I would prefer the talking in person thing. Uh, but today's episode, we're going to discuss chapter 18 of Gentle and Lowly, which speaks of God's heart uh, yearning for his people. So Dan and Liz, thanks a ton for joining me and being willing to do this again. Uh, it's very kind of you. It's interesting. I was thinking actually like five minutes ago about our two recordings have been the most interesting logistically uh, because last time I think, I don't know, Liz, you might, I think you're in your office at work. Maybe I was, and, and Dan, Dan was like cut out so many times with the internet. I did. Yeah. Dan. I was thinking about that too. And I was like, I'm glad I'm home tonight. Yeah. You, Dan was just on a porch somewhere. Like, I guess it was a porch he was allowed to be on, but he was just on a porch somewhere. And uh, his phone, for people that you wouldn't know if you listen, because he cut it all out, but his phone kept disconnecting. And every time it got funnier and funnier. It was always like a cliffhanger moment of like, come on, just end the sentence. Yeah, I know. Yeah. He did it on purpose. I really wanted to. I think so. It was like a commercial break where you're wondering what's coming next. Um, And now this time I'm hiding in my basement uh, because our kids are going to bed and you guys have just put your kids to bed. So we are going to try to do this and see if we get interrupted. It's going to be great. (laughs) Yeah, it'll be great. So when I think about putting my kids to bed, one of the things that I've always tried to do when I put my kids to bed is to tell them that I love them and that God loves them. I want that to be like the two things that they hear when they go to bed. So no matter what happened in that day in their life, what happened in our family's life, I want them to hear that they're loved by, by me, by Melanie and by God. And this chapter opens uh, in Jer- with Jeremiah 31.3, when God says to Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And Dane Ortland's talking about that based on the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah, Israel had expected to, be, to hear this more judgment from them. But God pulls out this surprise and a sense of comfort because he says that he's pulled them into his heart and they can't sin their way out of it. And so I think this idea that we can't sin our way out of God's embrace or his heart is a a lovely and powerful image for us as we try to find rest in the gentle and lowly Christ. 
And it reminds me of this line that's in the Westminster Confession that says that there's no sin so small that doesn't deserve damnation, but also there's no sin so great that it can bring damnation to those who truly repent. So Dan and Liz, as you guys go through the ups and downs of your life and your life together, how have you found this truth that you can't sin your way out of God's loving heart to be a comfort? And, and also, have there been times when you've struggled to believe this truth that you can't sin your way out of God's heart? It is of great comfort to know that no matter what is going on in my day, uh, God's always there. It's like a, a safety net, um, but it's also a a presence alongside. So the comforting presence, um, as we go through the ups and downs, it's not just, Oh, I get to the end of the day and wow, today was really hectic. I couldn't have done this without God. Well, God was there the whole way. And I, I did it and I went through it because God was present with me. Um, and the, sometimes I forget the presence, um, of God and, it is always good to know that he is uh, always with me and always walking alongside. Um, so yes, difficult to believe. And I, thinking back to the um, last chapter we did, um, our sin and God's holiness, like God is still loving me no matter how poorly I love him and look for his comfort. Um, and that continues to astound and draw me closer to him. I guess I would add, um, just even the line that you quoted from the Westminster confession. Um, I think that my perception as a human is that, um, either all of the sins that I did that day are really small and I'm like, Psh, I'm good. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's the worst sin ever. That's pride. And then I'm like, that's it. Like I'm done. So like, I mean, I would quickly spiral, um, or the reverse, right. That like, Oh man, this was bad. <laughs> like there was a bad day. Like, or however you view your own sin. And it's a roller coaster sometimes of if you're, um, like seeing something in front of you and like, man, that was really little man. That was really big. The point is that no sin is good. <laughs> none, none of it. And so like all of the small, all of the big, it's just all sin. And to think about it that way, doesn't matter my human and imperfect view of it. The fact is that I can't do this without Jesus. Um, and his loving heart for me blankets, all of it even my imperfect view, like my, my sinful view of my own sin is imperfect and in need of a God who loves and a God who saves. And that, if that's not comforting, um, I'm not sure what is honestly, because we are so far from him without him. Um, and that, and that's really comforting. I would, I would echo Dan though, to say that it is difficult to believe because sometimes we do in our imperfect view of sin and imperfect view of ourselves, we just don't feel like we're worth it and we're not, um, but he loves us anyway. And so just constantly preaching the gospel to ourselves because we are his greatest treasure. The fact that he rescues it. I mean, that's how we say it to our mm -hmm. kids going back to, mm -hmm. you know, making it full circle to what you said, mm -hmm. um, we always tell our kids the same thing. Like you're loved. Jesus loves you. He saved you. Um, 
because you're worth it. And we've said that a lot. You're worth it. You're worth the love that God has given to you because he's God, not because of anything we did. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's, what's really fascinating. Um, I don't, I don't think a ton of us spend a lot of time in Jeremiah. It, it's long and it can be overwhelming. Um, and there is so much, um, maybe not just judgment, but there is so much of reminding God's people of their sin. Like, um, so I, I mentioned it, the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah are this detailed recounting of the sins of Israel. And then there's this little mini section that um, Dane Ortland's leaning on. And then the last 18 chapters are this detailed recounting of the sins and the coming judgment of the surrounding nations. And it's interesting, you guys talk about sort of the, the yo-yoing that we have in response to our sin. Like when we either reflect on our own sin or when someone else points it out to us, like either we tend to diminish it or we think it's the worst, like you said, it's the worst thing ever. And because of that, there's no way that God will, will accept me back in. And I'm sure that when Jeremiah, and I mean, you see, you see it in the stories, but when Jeremiah is telling the people their sin, like they're having those same responses in a sense, like they're struggling, mostly minimizing it. But I'm sure there are also moments that they think, well, God's going to drop us and we have no hope anymore because of all this stuff. Like if this is all true, if Jeremiah, you're speaking for God, then what hope do we have? And that's why these middle chapters of 30 to 33 are so are so wonderful because God knows that they're going to struggle in their response to this prophecy from Jeremiah. But he still says, like, I love you to the end and you can't get away from my heart. And so Ortland hangs on Jeremiah 31 verse 20 as sort of the central verse for this chapter where he says, is Ephraim or Israel? Is Israel my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. And these verses, when they're stuck in the middle, sort of serve as a hinge point or the central idea of the book of Jeremiah. And this verse in particular, I thought it was interesting when I was just looking at it a bit. It is filled with affection. So it says that Israel is his dear son, darling child, that even in the midst of judgment and correction, he remembers his people, his heart yearns, and also he will surely have mercy. And so when you guys hear these words of affection to describe not just God's heart toward Israel, but toward you too, as individuals, uh, as, as people made in God's image, when you hear God use these words of affection to describe his heart toward you, how does then your heart respond what stirs within you when you hear this love i thought about this a lot um since we kind of set up that we are coming back on the show and um to talk about this chapter so my i had two gut reactions um my first one was um I don't deserve it. But then just like I said a moment ago if we're reminding our kids and others um we need to remind ourselves and preach the gospel to ourselves every day that God loves me. Um, he loves Israel. He loves his ki- his people, his children. Um, so then that's my second one is that it fills me with gratitude, um, which seems like a small word to describe, you know, 
the thankfulness that's in my heart knowing uh, that I am saved and that I'm loved is, I mean, just gratitude feels really pale <laughs> and mm. like small mm. to mm -hmm. say it. Um, but I think about, I, I think about like what it would, what it truly means to be with him forever and how I have that because he has forgiven my sins um, because of his heart, then it would, it would only be right. I guess that my heart should react that way. Um, and there's all sorts of theological angles we could take on that of a, why my heart does it that way. Um, and how he's called me and how he's loved me. But for now, those were, though, that was my two, uh, those were my two kind of reactions. I think also like I, as I'm looking at the sentences and I'm looking at the, that text from Jeremiah, like I replaced my name is Dan, my dear son is Dan, my darling child. Um, and like that just over overflowing gratitude is yeah. a pale word as Liz put it, um, joy. Um, and like, because God sees me that way, I don't always see myself being worthy of that. And then I act out of the unworthiness. I don't act out of the, the way that God sees me. So it helps me to switch the way I'm thinking about myself and then being able to act out of that place and live in that place so that I'm viewing myself more as God sees me and not so much as I'm seeing myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's amazing and uh, probably helpful that I think you're right. I think gratitude is, is in one sense, like that's the only response we can have and it's not enough which then spins us back to be to be in back in awe of what God has done for us. So like he loves us so much despite us. And so we are we have gratitude for that. And then we're like, but that, that gratitude's not enough. So it moves us back then to be in awe of God. It's almost like if we did have a response that was good enough, <laughs> then then now all of a sudden we're on this sort of like evil not evil, even playing field, Ooh, evil playing field and, and even playing field. And then, and then it's like, well, I guess God's love isn't any bigger than my gratitude. So like, it's almost like we love each other evenly. So yeah, like our gratitude should feel not enough because that keeps us going back to, wow, God's love is truly overwhelming. There's nothing that I can do that, that would deserve this. Um, the other line in here, in this verse, it says that God remembers his people. And we've talked about this, I think at Wheatland a number of times before, but that it's always good for us to remember that when God remembers, it's way more than the sort of way we use it in English as this mental exercise of things that we might remember. But it always means that God keeps his covenant promises to bring salvation and rescue to his people. So when you, again, think about 29 chapters of idolatry and unfaithfulness, God still says like, no, you're my children. You are my dear son, my darling child. And I still remember you. Not, I just remember who you are, but like, I still am faithful to you, faithful to my, my covenant, faithful with my covenant love. Sometimes I think I am, I tend to read stuff like this and I hear it that God was angry for 29 chapters and then he pulled it together and realized he went too far 
sort of like me apologizing, I don't know, to someone if I speak out of frustration rather than love. I speak out of frustration and then I pull it together and now I'm like, oh, wait, no, I actually, I really do love you. And I, and I do remember you and you are my darling uh, child. So if that's not what's going on, then uh, you guys now have the chance to solve all the problems for all of us and all of the struggle. If that's not what's yes. happening, <laughs> yes, this, this is your moment. No, but it's not, it can't be that God was so ticked off and then he calmed down and then said something nice. Uh, but if that's not what's going on here, then why does God give 29 chapters of warning and then follow it with the with this affection and hope? So I really liked in the chapter how he said that remembering was not an alternative to forgetting. It was an alternative to forsaking. Mm -hmm. And I think that that goes to your question here because um, he is almost... Uh, he is reminding Israel, like maybe they have forgotten or their perspective point is different, but Hey, by the way, like this is kind of like the landscape that we find ourselves in right now. And I'm still never, ever, 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 ever going away. Like I'm still so much bigger. I am. And so that it just makes the magnitude of what he has done and who he is that much greater and that much more awe-inspiring that he wouldn't forsake after you know all of the things that Israel we have done mm -hmm. I don't, but. yeah I, I really like that way of putting it I feel like this is God saying Israel you forgot I didn't forget I I remembered all of this and am still loving you and going to see you this way and yearn for you and, and want you to be my child and do whatever I need to, to bring you back to me. Uh, and God is always going to be approaching Israel and us with that heart. Mm -hmm. I guess I would also add, like, I mean, he is a just God. And so there is judgment and he can judge because he is the judge and so that he it's almost like he has the right to be able to say like all these things happen like these things are gonna happen and <laughs> it's not like a but or an or it's just mm -hmm. and <laughs> i yeah. will never forsake you and this is how cool i am <laughs> because mm -hmm. i love you and all you know all these things <laughs> yeah yeah i just felt I like the balance was important sorry dan's laughing at me i just felt like the balance was important to say like he is just and merciful. So mm -hmm. anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, Luke and I have been talking about this uh, a bunch, actually, uh, not this this book and chapter, but as we've been uh, reflecting on Jonah, we've sat down and talked a number of times and and tried to get Samuel to solve all of our problems for us, which he has not done yet, but he's still working on it. <laughs> but like we tend to, like you said, we tend to put justice and mercy in opposition to each other mm. or that um yeah we, we we see those two as as opposing ideas um and i get it i think maybe with our human understanding they often do feel like opposing ideas They're like oh i have to choose between either being just in this situation or being merciful um but somehow god pulls both of those two together and they they're never intention in god's character so it isn't it isn't and like you're saying liz like this is he is both of these things 
I think I said in the Jonah series, he's both of these things perfectly all the time in every single moment, even though we feel like somehow we're going to have to differentiate these two things and choose one in every single situation, but somehow God does it perfectly together. And it's, and it's wonderful to see in a sense, like it's 29 chapters that builds up to, I'm going these 29 chapters of pointing out your sin and declaring judgment are necessary for you to see the weight of my grace and the significance of my grace. Like if I just mentioned it in one sentence, it wouldn't seem like that big of a deal. But Jeremiah goes on and on and on. So they can see that when he now reveals God's heart to them and he, well, in the chapter, if you, if you read it, uh, it shows that it's slight, it's a different word than heart, which refers to the insides or the bowels of someone, as we know from the title of the chapter. And so Jeremiah then sort of reveals or uh, points out, reminds the people using this idea to speak of the insides of God, saying it like this affection and grace comes from the deepest place of God. It's not, uh, it's, it comes from inside of him. And I think it was Orland, he said that one of the ideas in here is that God is restless to be merciful and gracious toward us. I think another time he talked about how God's grace is just ready at a pinprick to sort of like explode onto us. But in here, he uses this idea of being restless, that when we sin or when we're sinned against, when we sin or when we're suffering, God remembers us and is so eager uh, to be gentle and merciful toward us that he's described as restless to do so, which I love. I love that as an image because I tend to see, see restlessness as a bad thing, uh, but he spins it as this positive thing. So can you guys share about how this sort of awareness of God's mercy that comes out of uh, the core of his being, how that has helped you guys walk through maybe a difficult situation or some sort of experience in your life like, how have you experienced something differently in your life, knowing that God is eager to be merciful and gracious to you? So what comes to mind is the weight of life. Um, we were uh, connecting over car woes before we started our podcast, and the, that was a great thing to connect on. And the reality is that, that those kinds of things keep coming um but those those difficulties of life and frustrations and um financial management and kid things and work stress and all of that isn't bigger than god and god is merciful and nothing that we experience nothing that we go through um will ever be so weighty that it's out of god's mercy to help us and work through it with us um so we have all of that the stuff of life and then the bigger things come rolling around and you're like wow how am i gonna handle this medical issues and loss and grief and different things happen but they are not ever bigger than god's love and his mercy yeah i think uh yeah, I, this idea of of restlessness and that God, yeah, God, like He's never surprised, first of all, by right. our struggle <laughs> in life, and and He's never sort of caught off guard that He has to build up 
his mercy and grace. Like you're saying, it's it's big enough. It's bigger uh, than everything. He never has to be like, oh, I better build up some mercy and grace for this particular situation that you guys are going through. I was just going to say that I, um, so our son is six right now, almost seven. And um, everything seems really important and like, he's going to burst with it at any moment. And, um, he just gets so excited, um, or like overwhelmed to tell me something about Lego or whatever. Um, and it's, and it's like, he, he, mama, can I tell you something? Um, um, mama, I, I am so excited because I did. And then, you know, fill in the blank, whatever. And that's like, what it makes me think of that. He, that God is like, so restless, like, ask me, ask me, ask me for forgiveness. Ask me for love. I'm here. I'm here. I'm already giving it to you. So like, that's kind of what it makes me Mm. think of this, like, like restless, not that he's just like listless and like twiddling his thumbs, like waiting for something, but it's almost this, like, I'm jumping out of my seat. I love you so much. I'm here. I'm coming. I want to show you. I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just makes me think of that. Like when <laughs> he's, our son is in front of us and he just, he literally cannot contain himself. And I know what he's going to say because he's holding it in his hand, but it's still <laughs> like, it still has to come from his mouth. And that Mm -hmm. that's like what greets me when I'm really like dwelling on that gratitude and like dwelling on who who I encounter, um, as my God. Yeah. And I've, I, I have to be honest, like I've never, that's the sort of image that I had in my head too. And I was thinking, I was thinking like a kid, like not holding it together in the classroom because they want to answer our questions so badly. Or like when we, when we give in and we tell two of our kids about the other kids, Christmas present or birthday present, and they like dropping hints constantly. (laughs) Yeah. And like, those are the two images I had. And I don't think I've ever had that sort of image in my mind for God's grace. Like I've had big images in my mind that it's big enough and great enough. And, but I don't know if I've ever had this sort of positive restlessness, like this, such an eager desire to, to be gracious. And I, and I, so I think in a sense, like it's hard for me to grasp, although just in the last five or six days, like dwelling on that image uh, has been really, really helpful for me. And I think it's helpful. Dane Ortland asked this question on page 166. If those who are listening, have the whole book memorized. Uh, uh, it says, he says, whom do you, he asks these questions and the rhetorical questions, whom do you perceive God to be in your sin and your suffering? Who do you think God is? Not just on paper, but in the kind of person you believe is hearing you when you pray. How does he feel about you? And I know he's asking this sort of rhetorically that we're not necessarily supposed to answer them, but too bad. We're going to, I want to get you guys to try to answer. It's a podcast after all. We we can do what we want. Uh, And so, yeah, there, there, he's making a point by asking a question, but but I wanted to ask you guys, like in the midst of your sin and suffering, like what, what kind of person do you guys think God is? Like when you're in the middle of it. So it's not like when you're sitting down and things are going well. Oh, well, yeah, God's great. He's gracious. He's wonderful. And he's forgiving. But in the midst of difficulty, uh, where does your heart tend to go when you think about who God is? I think when um, Orland asked these rhetorical questions, he had just either he was about to, or had just kind of talked about how we tend to separate sin and suffering, um, when we shouldn't, because he is God and consistent and, Mm. and responds with the same like eagerness and restlessness, um, 
and that like yearning to meet us. So, but uh, this was really good for me to think about when I was reading the chapter, because I, in the midst of it, per your question, do not think that way. I separate them. And I have a very like elementary view sometimes when I'm in like deep crisis of how I'm praying. And it goes all the way back to Sunday school when I was like a little tiny tot and mm-hmm. they use the like throne room and like living room prayers. Did you hear that analogy? Like when you were younger and that like, quite honestly, when I'm like suffering, I'm like, man, like God, like be with me. And I'd like have this image of like this very fatherly, like personification, like enveloping Mm me. But when I am confessing a sin or like having that recognition, it's like, woof, like better put my, better, better dress up, better, like come ready to go. Like with my, how does the, uh, Jesus storybook Bible say it in the, uh, the, I'm sorry speech. Like he Mm -hmm. was like preparing and in the prodigal son story, he was saying like, he was practicing his, I'm sorry Mm -hmm. speech. Mm -hmm. Um, but God, the father was just like yearning, waiting, watching for mm-hmm. um, him to come home. And so I, I think this was really good for me to just kind of have it laid out there in the chapter of like, Hey, we just have talked for 18, 18 chapters about how he is like bursting with love for you. And that applies when you sin and when you suffer and mm-hmm. in all these other situations. And so just helping me as an adult, like constantly reframe that. And it sounded like really elementary, but I'm serious. Like that was in my gut. Like when I'm in crisis, I'm like, oof, I got it. I got to buckle up. I got to shine my shoes or something. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Do people still shine their shoes? I I know that's a metaphor. We've been watching Parks and Rec and there is a shoe shine in there. Oh yeah. There you go. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Bad I was thinking, example. Bad example. Yeah, that's okay. But we still get it, even though nobody does it anymore. Well, I thank people, you. People I do, appreciate but, yeah, that. We still, we still All get of my it. old archaic references, <laughs> like examples in that answer. Yeah. It's connectable. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. It is. Yeah. I, I was thinking. Um, so then Thomas Goodwin in the book, he, since he loves and is fairly, you, I, I might say obsessed with Thomas Goodwin. I'd, I'd, I'd say <laughs> I go that strong. Um, for good reason. It's support, it's really solid support, stuff yeah. what he says. But he talks about um, how our pity and compassion rises in intensity alongside the degree to which we love someone. So since God, and as you're talking about, since God's love for us, whether we're in the midst of sin or suffering, since it is so strong, that's why his pity and compassion for us is so strong, which then relates to us in our own life. when When we deeply love someone, we will have deep compassion for them in the midst of their sin and their suffering, not just their suffering, but also their sin. But then also when I believe that God could never love someone like me, then I'll also believe that God would have very little compassion on me when I sin and suffer. It's like what you're talking about, Liz, struggling with that. And I think also if I think that God is not going to have compassion on me, even in the midst of my sin, that I imagine this ends up leading me to be afraid of him because then I'm afraid that God will lash out at me in anger in the midst of my sin, maybe not my suffering, but definitely in the midst of my sin. So that's why I think, and I think Goodwin's right, that this has to sink deep into our hearts so that I grow in knowing and experiencing God's compassion for me when I sin and suffer. But I think one of the best ways for this to sink in is when we have people in our lives 
who model this love uh, for us, to model God's deep compassion and love for us. So have you guys had people in your life who, whether it's parents or other people uh, who had some sort of uh, authority or mentoring relationship for you, or maybe just friends, but have you guys had people in your life who had, you felt that, that sort of this deep love that also was matched by this compassion in the midst of your sin and your suffering as well. I always found that I could relate to God and knew that God was present because my parents were and because my mm -hmm. parents would take that time and, and show that for me. And then through all of that, like as I got older, different people came in my life. So my, I had a mentor in college and he was walking alongside me and helping me through some stuff and then getting married and, and seeing Liz's compassion in the midst of suffering and seeing Liz's love and strength for me, despite my flaws, um, helps to give a new perspective on that. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Like that's our goal and our role maybe in one sense as parents but also to everybody to everyone in our lives to to reflect god's love his grace his compassion not just when people are suffering but also when people are are sinning and to reflect that to our brothers and sisters and our neighbors uh who are struggling to live in relationship with jesus or even who who aren't living in relationship with jesus because we all long for this kind of love Ortland writes this uh, late in the chapter. He says, the world is starving for a yearning love, a love that remembers instead of forsakes, a love that isn't tied to our loveliness, a love that gets down underneath our messiness, a love that is bigger than the enveloping darkness we might be walking through even today, a love which even the be very best human romance is the faintest of whispers. And I know we'll never do this perfectly, um, because we're all broken people, but we are reflecting the image of God to the world. And we do this, maybe it's the faintest of whispers, but it's still a whisper. And so how have you guys practically attempted to reflect God's deep love and compassion, even if it is merely a whisper of it, but how have you guys sought to try to do that to, to others, to your neighbors, to family or friends? And how do they, how have it has been received by others? Um, I would say a lot of listening and a lot of presence. Um, a lot of people that we know right now have um, a lot of things that are hard that are happening in their life or things that they are struggling with. And there isn't really a lot that we can do um, other than pray. And we are doing that. But I think the, the next step, again, practically is how can I help? Uh, or um, even going a step further and saying, I'm actually going to help next Tuesday. And it's going to mm -hmm. be in this way. Um, and I'm just going to be with you. Um, I kind of meet you where you are and even to kind of the first part of your question about meeting those that we know or who are in our life that don't know Jesus or aren't walking with Jesus. Um, being able to do this consistently uh, and faithfully is 
really hard, but I think speaks volumes to individuals who don't know Jesus. Um, it get, it does give a really faint, uh, faint whisper as, as Orland says it. And just to be able to point back to God, um, is a great honor and it's super humbling. So not to be taken lightly, but I think that consistency and just kind of showing up over and over, um, is, uh, yeah, it's hard, but I think that like, that's what God does. That's what it means when he's remembering and, and being covenantly faithful. I think I made up grammar there, but when he's being faithful <laughs> in a covenant way, um, I, yeah, I can't do that as an imperfect human, but I can be a good friend and show up and I can check in and I can commit to prayer. Um, so those are like the, the top things practically that I try to do, um, whether it's a coworker or a friend or a sister or brother. So, yeah. And it's become quite one of the first things you mentioned was being, was listening and then just being present in the midst of listening. It seems like, I'm not saying that we've ever been exceptional listening throughout history, but it seems particularly now, um, we're doing a really bad job of it. Like we're very quick to, yeah, yeah. to, to, <laughs> yeah. to share in whatever way uh, we share our opinions and we are quite slow to, to listen and try to learn from others and to sit in the midst of another person's experience. That doesn't always guarantee, of course, results. I, I one thing I love, and that's always encouraged me in the scriptures, is that we're always called to faithfulness. Like there's never any measurement, like there's never any results measurement in a sense when it comes to interacting with your neighbors and interacting with others. It's like there's never, there's nothing in the Bible that says, if you're not seeing this and this happen in your next door neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, then you're not, you're doing it wrong. It's just like, no, 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 show the fruit of the spirit. So be faithful in the midst of that. Sometimes it will be received with open arms because we're built and starving for this yearning love. Sometimes people will say, no, and push you away. Uh, but the call is still, is still faithfulness and, and not these results. Um, so this is the last chapter for everyone who's been following along. This is the last chapter that focuses on an Old Testament passage. Uh, Ortland now transitions back to Jesus. I think he spent five chapters here studying the Old Testament, uh, finishing here with Jeremiah. And so I just want to close our time by reading a paragraph here from the final pages of the chapter. And since it was his final words, I assume they're probably decent. Why would I make something else up that I think might be better? So Ortland argues that throughout the Old Testament, there's this rumbling tension uh, between divine justice and divine mercy. But then he writes this, but at the height of human history, justice was fully satisfied and mercy was fully poured out at the same time when the father sent his eternally dear son and darling child to a Roman cross where God truly did speak against him, where Jesus Christ poured out his blood, the innocent for the guilty, so that God could say of us, I remember him still. On the cross, we see what God did to satisfy his yearning for us. The effusiveness of heaven's heart funneled down into the crucifixion of Christ. So repent of your small thoughts of God's heart. Repent and let him love you. And I love that as an ending, that part of our repentance is not actually just of our sin, but it's repenting of having this small view of God's heart. And I think what this book, at least for me, is doing is it is 
keeps pushing back on my small thoughts of God's heart. It keeps showing me, you know, God's heart is bigger than you could possibly imagine. And he longs to love you and show you that and show you his heart more than you could possibly imagine. So I appreciate you guys uh, hopping on and doing this again. I promise I won't ask you again. This is, this is, this is the last, this is the last (laughs) to be on the pod. What are you guys doing next week? So uh, (laughs) yeah. So I appreciate you guys doing this and helping us walk through this book. I know that many people really appreciate hearing the voices of others at Wheatland and not just me and Luke rambling on. So it's been (laughs) wonderful to hear other stories because it helps people get to know you and helps you guys be known in our congregation. And it draws out other people's experiences. So thank you so much for doing this again. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Heart of Christ, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit wheatlandpca.org.